Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest, a quest not for a thing, but for an idea, a quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves, a quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Well, It isn't every day that I get to interview a New York Times bestselling author whose work is so compelling that HBO turned it into a highly successful TV series. Ever hear of the show Lovecraft Country? Our guest wrote the bestselling book of the same name on which that show is based. And it's fantastic. I loved it. In fact, he's the author of multiple books, including Fool on the Hill, Sewer, Gas, and Electric, the Public Works Trilogy, Set This House in Order, A Romance of Souls, Bad Monkeys, The Mirage, Lovecraft Country, and 88 Names. He's written other books as well, though they are not published, at least not yet. He's been described as an author of thriller, science fiction, and comic novels, but he has said that he doesn't actually write in the same genre more than once which I'd call pretty extraordinary in and of itself for an author who has published so many successful books. His first novel, Fool in the Hill, is a fantasy that actually drew on his experiences living at Cornell University, where he went to college. And he initially wrote it as a senior thesis in honors English, though it wasn't published until after he graduated. I assume, by the way, that he got an A on it. Set This House in Order, A Romance of Souls, won the 2007 James Tiptree Jr. Award, a PNBA Book Award, and a Washington State Book Award. Bad Monkeys received the 2008 Washington State Book Award for Fiction, a PNBA Book Award, and an Alex Award. And by the way, I heard that it's going to be made into a movie starring Margot Robbie. We'll definitely need to hear more about that during our conversation. The Mirage was nominated for the Sideways Award for Alternate History, and Lovecraft Country was nominated for the World Fantasy Award in 2017. Our guest was also the recipient of a 2006 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship in Prose. Please welcome the extraordinary Matt Ruff. Welcome, Matt. Well, thank you for having me. 
That's a nice intro. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, as I said, I've uh, been been uh, been trying to uh, to read your books and uh, really appreciate your style. Uh, so we'll get into all that, but let's let's actually start our conversation toward the beginning of your life on your website, and I'll give the website address in a moment. But on your website, you say. I decided I wanted to be a fiction writer when I was five years old and spent my childhood and adolescence learning how to tell stories. Yet, I also read that many adults around you actually tried to persuade you to choose a different career. Most of us don't pursue the careers we wanted to pursue when we were five. If I had, I'd be a paleontologist, I guess, today, especially (laughs) when we're told not to. You're an obvious exception. Tell us why. I, I mean, I think I'm just one of those people who came wired from the factory to do a specific thing. I, I, I just never really, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to, I think when I was very young, I thought you could be multiple careers and I would, you know, like, oh, I'll be a fireman in the spring and this and, you know, and this, but, but the storytelling was always something I wanted to do from the very beginning. And I was always drawn to long form. Uh, fiction from the very beginning, which at least when I was growing up, there was this idea, no, you do short stories first, learn how to do it, and then you work your way up to bigger things. And as, as I firmly believe now, those those really require two very different skill sets. So learning how to tell a good short story won't really help you learn how to tell write a novel and vice versa. So I just I just always like the idea of long form fiction. And it is true that I, you know, there were there were grown-ups around me who were tried to be more practical and say, well, yeah, you know, you can do that, but what are you really going to do? But the two most important people in my life, my mom and dad, were were quite supportive, particularly my mother. So yeah, I can I can point out instances where people tried to, you know, steer me in a more practical direction. But that I really do was not conscious of that being very common. It's just when it came up occasionally I'd be like, what are you talking about? You know, this yeah. is what I'm going to do. Yeah, I, I actually read probably on your website, but I, I I read that your your parents were very supportive, and uh, you said especially your mother, and uh, you tell the story about how she even bought you an IBM Selectric typewriter. I remember those, by the way; those were pretty cool. Those were, that uh, was the your, Cadillac of typewriters, like the pinnacle of typewriter evolution before they became obsolete. Um, yeah, so. To tell you all about my parents, my mother was a missionary's daughter. My maternal grandfather, Albert Landbauer, was born in Missouri, but was sent to southern Brazil, what they call the Guarani region. Um, there was a colony of German and Russian woodworkers down there who were nominally Lutheran, but really unchurched. And the Lutheran church was worried that they were going to lose them to the Baptists. So grandpa got sent down there to sort of gather them back in and you know, could not convince any of his girlfriends from North America to join him on this adventure. So he married a Russian emigre down there and they had eight kids together, one of whom was my mother. So mom was born in the jungles of Brazil. Eventually the family crossed the river and, and to the jungles of Argentina. That's where mom grew up. And uh, she did not come to the United States until her twenties. And she was an incredibly bright woman. She spoke four languages fluently, could get along in a half dozen others. But Argentina during the Peron era, they did not encourage women to pursue higher education. So she didn't have a college degree. And I, I think she always felt a little bad about that. And she also never really figured out she never she would the way she would put it she never found her niche in life she never quite figured out what she was meant to do and so I think she always felt with me because I I had this very strong idea of what I wanted to do she wanted to make sure I got the best shot at that and so she yeah she got me the typewriter she you know got one of my aunts to teach me how to touch type and uh, was always my biggest champion when I was young um 
And the other thing, of course, is you have a mother who grew up in the jungle, you're going to get a lot of really cool stories. So mom was, was very much the source of my love of, you know, it's like growing up with a magic realist in the house when you're hearing about what life was like down there. Mm-hmm. My father was a Midwestern preacher. He was a Lutheran uh, pastor, although the, the family was actually, the rough ice cream was apparently a big thing in Michigan at the, the turn of the, the last century. So he came from this family that made ice cream. He became a preacher um, and then eventually moved to New York City and became a hospital chaplain. And that's where he met and married my mother. And people always assume when I told people that my dad was a chaplain that he must have been very strict. But actually, it was like mom was the missionary's daughter. Mom was the moral enforcer in the household. She Missionaries are the ones who they want to convince you that they're right. They want to argue with you. Dad was really more like a religious version of a psychologist. He was a counselor and an advisor. If you asked him, you know, what he thought about something, he would he would tell you, but he wasn't terribly invested in getting you to agree with him. His job was to just give you the best advice he could, and it was up to you what to do with it. And it was from my father that I learned, without even realizing I was learning it, just basically the this sort of how to understand other people who are different from me. He was very good at, you know. Dad's dad's method of argument was he would let you say your piece and you know listen patiently and then when you were done talking when you ran out of steam he would say two or three sentences that just sort of pointed out the thing that you'd missed or the thing that you thought you needed to think a little more about and so it's like my mom taught me basic storytelling principles I think and taught me you know a love of wild storytelling my dad taught me this more subtle idea of how to get into the heads of people who don't think like me and why that's useful and important and. Between the two of them, I got a really useful education in, in, in how to tell stories. And that really folded into what I was doing as I grew up. And um, alas, they, you know, they both died when I was still fairly young. Mom died in 1987, um, shortly. You know, while you were still at Cornell. Yeah, while I was still at Cornell. Dad lived four years after that. He died of cancer in 1991. And uh, yeah, and so... Dad lived long enough to see my first novel published, but you know, I, 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 it's one thing I really do miss is having them around. I would, I think they would both have been thrilled the way my career has ultimately worked out. But um, yeah, I have no doubt of that. I have no doubt. Did you have other? Were there other major influences that that you can that you can recall? I mean, there were there are teachers and other people along the way. Like Frank McCourt, the memoirist, was one of my high school teachers. This was before he was famous, but um, I read that. Yeah, the the you know we we got the draft version basically of Angela's Ashes in, in class because what he did a lot of the time was just he would tell stories about his own childhood and he was great so that was he was one of those teachers who just stays with you. Alison Laurie, the novelist, was a creative writing teacher of mine at Cornell, and she was the one who when I when I wrote my first novel said you know when you when you get this finished, my agent's name is Melanie Jackson. You you should send this to her and. That right there was the basically justified my entire Cornell tuition because, you know, Melanie loved the book and took it and sold it six months after I graduated and has been my agent and counselor ever since, you know, more than three decades now. And Melanie is one of those people who really made my career possible. So she's been an incredible, an incredible source of inspiration and help and counsel all these years. Yeah. And then there are, there are, you know, there are other folks, there are writers who I've admired. There are other teachers I had with Lovecraft Country specifically. I had a, had a friend named Joe Scandalbury at Cornell, who was the RHD at Ujima, which is the, the dorm affiliated with the Africana Studies program. Joe, 
Joe wasn't my first black friend, but he was the, the first person who really got me to understand the, the difference between the way black folks and white folks experienced life in America at that time and even to this day and got me thinking about stuff that 30 years later, I, I folded into Lovecraft country. And through him, I met James Turner, who is a, a teacher at Cornell, who also taught me some stuff that stayed with me. So I, I need to name check them as well. I'm sure there are people I'm forgetting, but that's like a, a partial list of the folks who've helped me along the way. Great. Well, we'll come we'll come back to uh, Lovecraft Country in a moment, but I do think we should start getting into your work. And I thought it would be good for if if you don't mind to uh, to begin by you maybe giving a brief description of of each of your novels. And I, I do want to ask: so, did you get an A on uh, on on the hill? Well, it wasn't great. It was a senior thesis. So it was, okay. it was, it was basically, you know, am I going to graduate with honors or not? It was just, so I, okay. yeah, I, I got summa cum laude on the basis of, of Fool on the Hill. And okay. I, I don't know, part, part of that was just, I, I remember that at the time it was basically, there was, if you, if you, you were allowed to write fiction as your thesis in creative writing, but there was a minimum length. There was no maximum length. After me, there was a maximum <laughs> length because <laughs> I think I'm the only person. Yeah, I, it was the, the manuscript that I turned in was something like 400 and some double spaced pages. And then you had to you had to make six copies and get them bound professionally. So I come into the, the thesis committee room with this stack of hardcover <laughs> encyclopedias. And I, I remember one of the guys that was there, it was there to collect the, the submissions. He just looked at me. So what the hell is this? And I said, oh, it's my thesis. It's a novel. <laughs> I said, well, who's your thesis advisor? And I said, Bob Farrell. Oh, another, there's another, there's another mentor I should mention. Bob Farrell, he was a teacher who, at Cornell. He was my thesis advisor. He was a great guy and taught me a lot of stuff as well. So anyway, yeah, I said, Bob Farrell's my thesis advisor. Well, you're, you, you take this to him. I don't want to deal with this. And, you know, so yeah, but they, they actually, when they actually read it, they liked it and I got some of it. So, mm-hmm. and it, it was, it was published, but yeah. So Fulney Hill was, a college comic fantasy set at Cornell. It's partially a love letter to the campus, but really what I did, I had like four different ideas for novels that didn't quite add up, none none of which quite added up to a book in its own right. So I said, well, let me put them all together in one novel. So it's basically like four different storylines sort of threaded together in in the backdrop of Cornell. It's one is about, um, you know, this wild group of students at Cornell who call themselves the Bohemians. Another is about this group of little people like sprites who live in the, the secret space, sort of like the borrowers who live in the secret spaces of the campus. Another one about talking animals having their own college. And then there's this framing story involving a Greek god who comes down to earth and messes with people's lives as a sort of way of, of novel writing, but with real people. And, and this really, this kitchen sink approach lets me throw all these ideas together and see what happens. It shouldn't work, but it turned out I had a knack for doing this, for taking things that didn't necessarily seem to fit together and making them work as a coherent story. So that was the first one. Surgas and Electric, the short version is it's basically a satire of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, science fictional satire of that. It's a lot of other things as well, but that's the, that's the main thing. Set This House in Order was my really, I think it was the novel, my first fully mature novel. And it's a a novel about two people with multiple personality disorder. And the title refers to the fact that the the protagonist, Andy Gage, has basically built an imaginary house in his head. Rather than seeking to reintegrate back to a single person, he's basically built this imaginary house in his head as a way of 
where his different people, his different souls can all sort of live and talk to each other and work together rather than constantly fighting for control. So it's a sort of coping mechanism. And he meets a woman named Penny Driver who is also multiple but hasn't figured it out yet. And then some of her more self-aware alters basically try to get Andy to help them build a house of their own and it gets more complicated from there, but it's about this friendship between these two, these two people. And that was actually my, my most ambitious and I think my longest novel ever. And after I was done with that, I wanted to do something short and quick and that I thought would just be a little gem of a novel that nobody would pay attention to. And it was my Philip K. Dick novel, I call it. And it's, it's Bad Monkeys. It's a very short, fast-paced book about this woman, Jane Charlotte, who claims to She's arrested for murder and under questioning claims to work for a secret organization that fights evil. And so she's put in a room with a psychiatrist who gets her to tell her story and is trying to figure out, you know, is she crazy? Is she lying? Or is there something else going on here? Again, very short book, didn't expect much of it. And of course, because of that, it became my most commercially successful novel up until Lovecraft Country. I followed that up with The Mirage, which is a 9-11 novel. It's set in an alternate universe where basically the United States and the Middle East have traded places. So the September 11 attacks, which now take place on November 9th, involve Christian fundamentalists from North America flying planes into buildings in downtown Baghdad and the all the Arab states in the Middle East are basically united into a democratic republic with its capital at Riyadh. So Riyadh is Washington DC, Baghdad is basically New York. And it doesn't just flip the geopolitical situation, it also flipped the the sense of who matters. So it's the good guys and the bad guys are Arab Muslims. The Americans are like these third world people who you you know sort of on the fringes of the story but the, the the protagonists are actually a group of arab homeland security agents in baghdad who find themselves caught between these these bomb throwing americans and then osama bin laden who in this in this world is a corrupt senator secretly trying to bring down the republic and saddam hussein who is a, a gangster since in a democratic republic he can't be a dictator and so it's it's a it's an it's sort of like 24. Imagine the, the 24, but set in this topsy turvy universe. And then I followed that up with Lovecraft Country, which the elevator pitch on that it's it 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 basically it was, imagine the X Files if Mulder and Scully were black travel writers living in the Jim Crow era. It's about a family who own a travel agency in Chicago in the 1950s, and they publish a a fictional version of the Green Book called the Safe Negro Travel Guide. And the son of the family, Atticus, is a field researcher for this guide. And his job is basically to drive around the country looking for hotels and restaurants and other establishments that will accept Black customers. And, you know, they publish this guide that tells Black travelers where they can go to get service. And um, he and his uncle George are also big nerds. They love science fiction and fantasy and other genre fiction, even though genre fiction doesn't necessarily love them back. And um, they get drawn into a real world weird, weird tale. And it's so the, the the story is a bit like sort of playing off paranormal horror against the most more mundane horrors of the Jim Crow era, and basically asking, you know, which is the bigger threat to safety and sanity, the thing under the bed or the white policeman waiting for you at sundown. And my most recent novel, 88 Names, it's a futuristic story, near future story about a guy named John Chu, who works as what's called a Sherpa, which is basically, he's an online video game guide. If you're, say you want to play World of Warcraft or the, you know, the virtual reality equivalent in the near future, and you don't have time to learn how to do that, 
you can pay him a fee and he will you know basically cater an adventure for you in world of warcraft or in some other online uh, game and teach you the ropes and one day he gets a new client who prefers to remain pseudonymous calls himself mr jones who's willing to pay a really big amount of money to get a, a, a comprehensive tour of the world of online video gaming and it sounds like one of those deals that's too good to be true, but the money's real. So John Chu takes the job, but he's obviously curious and he begins to suspect that Mr. Jones may actually be the North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un. And the other twist about the story is that the first two thirds of the novel take place entirely in virtual reality where everyone has total control over how they look and sound. So all the people John Chu interacts with, not just Mr. Jones, but even his coworkers are people he's never met in real life. So there's this constant guessing game of, how much do I really know these people? So that's that's sort of a, a fun adventure. And I think at one point it's I, I describe it as sort of the, the King and I meets Snow Crash, something like that. So that was that's my most recent one. So you, as you can sort of surmise from all of this, I'm all over the map in terms of genre. The idea of never stepping in the same genre twice, that was something I, I, I came up with as sort of a, a sop for my publicist, my poor publicist who for years, you know, saying, well, you know, your new book is nothing like your last book. You know, why are you doing this to us? <laughs> how, how do we, how do, you want us to go out there and say, if you love Matt Ruff's latest and last novel, well, guess what? His new one is nothing like that. You should read it. So, but it's true. I've been fortunate that my publishers have allowed me to basically go wherever I want to do and, and follow my interests wherever they lead me. And it's led to this weird career where I've, I've basically my genre is not rough novels, which are novels about whatever I feel like writing about at the moment. So that's, yeah, the, that's and- the brief version. It strikes me as though you're unrestrained. You're you're not bound into any particular genre, and that I, I imagine that's liberating for you as an author. And yet, I also do hear though that you're highly creative, and you do seem to to focus in the area of fantasy and comics. And as you you point out in Lovecraft Country, what you described as pulp fiction, mm-hmm. and you know just fun stuff. Well, that's the thing. I've never really, part of the thing is I just never really felt the need to stick to, to one lane at a time. A hybridization is such a wonderful thing. It's like, yeah. why not? Yeah, it's mainly this kind of novel, but let me borrow a couple of tropes from that kind of novel because, you know, so yeah, to do a straight, a, to do straight literary fiction where you don't bring in anything my, my mind always seems to go in that way of, of somewhat fantastic stuff. Some of the novels are more grounded. With every book, I decide, you know, how wacky can things get? How unrealistic can things get? Despite, despite you know, the description, I think Set This House in Order is probably my most naturalistic and, and, and grounded of, of, you know, it's, it's, it's really my most literary novel in terms of not bringing in fantasy tropes at any point. But in general, yeah, there's a part of me that always kind of wants to go there because there's just so many interesting things you can do if you, if you bend the the rules of reality a little bit or a lot and I've, I've never seen a reason to to limit myself and part of this is I think comes from being self-taught I didn't have anyone telling me you can't do it that way and mm-hmm. when people tried to tell me that I would just be like well you you do it that way then if that's how you feel but I I really like this so and that has worked out that has worked for me more often than it's worked against me I mean it, it, there have been cases where I've ignored advice and you know end up banging my head against the wall and realizing, oh yeah, that was right. But in general, I just, yeah, I never saw the point in limiting myself that way or following yeah. rules that didn't make sense for the stories I wanted to tell. Matt, are you an Asimov fan? Actually, no. I've, I've, I think I tried to read one couple of his things. 
I, I really need character. Mm-hmm. I, I really need deep character. And I, I, he's just not a character guy. The, 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 one, I think one of the first writers I really idolized was probably Stephen King, who yeah. was somebody who, his biggest strength really is that he wrote about people who, he, he took pulpy themes, but he put in people who felt real and who you actually cared about. The kind of folks you, you could imagine, you know, knowing like, yeah, what if my high school English teacher, you know, got caught in a vampire novel? What would that be like? He'd draw these portraits of small town Maine that just felt really real. And I really kind of need that, I think, to care. I need to care about the people I'm writing about. I need, and I need them to feel psychologically realistic. And yeah, Asimov, I just never, the, I, granted, I never, I never really tried him. I think I, I read all of 10 or 15 pages before bouncing off him, but he's not, yeah. Yeah. I, the reason I asked is is just because you know, he is another, and he's best known for science fiction, obviously, and some may even say he was the father of science fiction. That's probably not entirely true. But he's, you know, there's a trivia question about him. He's the only author to ever publish in, it's either nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 of the, the old Dewey Decimal System. In other words, he was another author that just wrote whatever he wanted to write. And while he's best known for one genre, he actually wrote everything. I mean, he was just so prolific, though, too. I'm definitely not that. I'm a lot more, I'm slower and more thoughtful about, you know, I I, I just need to, I need to think about stuff for a long time before you can start writing it. Well, let's talk about that. So what is your process? I just read Lovecraft Country. And I mean, that it, it's a complex book because, as you point out, there are multiple storylines. You wanted to have multiple protagonists. And you, and you say, I think, in your notes that part of that was because you did actually write it with the intent of pitching it to, you know, as a TV series. So what's okay, your yeah. process? Well, let me talk about the origin story of that one to give you a sure. sense of how that happened. So Lovecraft Country, yeah, I, after Bad Monkeys came out, or it may have been right before Bad Monkeys came out, there was a surprising, to me, a surprising amount of commercial interest. In hindsight, it makes total sense. But I had a meeting with some TV people who were very excited about Bad Monkeys. And they basically, they were like, you know, we would love you to pitch us original TV series ideas. And they encouraged me to let my imagination go wild, you know, the sky's the limit. And I, of course, understood that, that their idea of Sky's the Limit was probably a lot more conservative than mine, but I basically, I ended up pitching them three ideas for stories that I thought, you know, if you could get them made, which I was pushing the envelope of what you could get on television at that time, that, that they would be really interesting TV, and one of which was Lovecraft Country, and so at, that was probably just a decade or so too early for that. The other two were the Mirage and 88 Names, by the way. But but with Lovecraft Country, yeah, it was just, first of all, it's a, it's, it is a genre story, so the, the special effects budget would be very high. It's with an almost entirely Black cast, and I, I did not do the thing that you can do to make that more palatable. I didn't give Atticus a white friend for the white audience to identify with, because First of all, the, the story was going to be about the horrors of racism. So I'm like, let's stay focused on the people for whom it actually is a horror. And you know, if you need a white character to identify with, then you're not going to like the story anyway. So why worry about that? So so yeah, it was probably just a little too early for prime time. And and you know, honestly, because I'm white myself, I may not have been the best pitch person for that at anyway at that time. So I'm like, okay, I, I'd fallen in love with the story, and then it was a question of okay, can I reimagine this as a novel? And part of the difficulty with Lovecraft Country was that I I did want to write a novel, but one of the things that made the series idea interesting to me, and if you've ever 
watch the X Files. Um, of course, two I have. kinds of stories. Yeah, they have the they have the art mythology stories, which are all about you know the, the larger story of Fox Mulder's missing sister and aliens. But then they have the monster of the week episodes, and right. I wanted to do both of those with Lovecraft Country. I thought it would be great to have a way of doing take classic horror and science fiction, other genre stories, and then reimagine them with black protagonists and weave in real world racial historical issues at the time. And like the classic example in the novel is probably the Dreams of the Witch House, which is Letitia buys a, she gets a, a deal on a house right. that's too good to be true in a white neighborhood and the house is haunted. So yeah. one woman buys a haunted house in a white neighborhood. So the neighbors want to burn her out, but then the ghost who's white as well doesn't want her there either. And to keep the house, she's basically got to find a way to play the dead off against the living. And, and she does. That was the kind of thing I wanted to do was, was, yeah, give each of my protagonists a chance to star in their own weird tale, which suggested not a novel, but a book of short stories, which particularly since The Mirage, which I wrote right before that, was my least commercially successful novel. So it was like, do I want to go to HarperCollins and say, yeah, you, my last novel just did terribly. How about publishing a book of short stories? I didn't think that would go over well. So I had to figure out a way to make that work. And yeah. what basically I eventually realized, fortunately, Netflix had come along and invented the idea of binge watching. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I can, I can do the TV series here. I can do, it's not chapters. It, they're not stories. It's episodes. And so the book became the literary equivalent of binge watching an entire season of television. So you start reading it and you think you're reading individual short stories and it's only as you go along that you realize, no, these are all pieces of a larger tale. So it's monster of the week, but it's also each one is actually part of the larger mythology. And then the hard part became what, what are the specific stories I want to do? What's every character going to do? And then how do I fit this all together? Which again, fortunately, that is kind of my specialty is, is taking things that don't look like they should fit and figure out a way to make them fit. But it was a long evolutionary process of, I knew how it was going to begin. I had a pretty good idea of how it was going to end, but then it was like, how am I going to fit these different pieces together? And that just involved a lot of thinking and, and figuring out. And again, I, I had initially pitched this, I think in 2007, I wrote the Mirage first because that was the most timely of the ideas I'd come up with. And then I started working on Lovecraft Country, I think in 2012 mm -hmm. and um, finished it in 2015 and it was published in 2016. So that was like eight years of, you know, five years of thinking about it before I started writing. Of course, some of the ideas and it went back further than that. So yeah, it was, I just have a long lead-in process. And in general, I've, I've, at any given time, I've got larval ideas for, you know, half a dozen to a dozen different novels bouncing around in my head somewhere. And I just wait. And, and basically one of them will commend itself to me. You know, one of them will start to edge forward and I'll, I'll start to get excited about it and realize, yes, all the pieces I need to start doing this will, it, this is baked, it's ready to go. And the problem then is that, of course, you know, just because it excites me doesn't necessarily mean that it's practical from a career sense, but I've been I've been pretty good about listening to that voice and telling myself, you know, you don't worry about the commercial potential, just do it. It's going to be fun. And, and then being lucky enough to have my publisher say, yeah, okay, yeah, you can, you can go ahead with this. But that's basically how it works. A lot of thinking about it in advance. And then by the time I get ready to write, I know generally what the, the first third of the book is going to look like very specifically. And I know what the ending is going to be. And then I have this much vaguer notion of what comes between that. And then I start working. And as I am working, that middle section starts to slowly come more into focus as I catch up to it. And then there's this glorious day where 
the front end meets the back end that I'm not done yet, but I've got the whole thing in my head and I know that it works the way I hoped it would. And then it's just a matter of finishing it and making it as good as I can and then letting it go into the world. So Everyone who loves science fiction, pulp fiction, fantasy, comics, and weird stuff generally has to read Lovecraft Country. I do want to take something up with you, though. I wanted to see a little bit more of what happened with the observatory that Hippolyta goes to, and she gets to go to a, a basically... A, you know, it's basically a portal into another planet. Yeah. And, and I love that part of the story. And I don't want to give too much away because I want people to go out and, and read the book and enjoy it for themselves. But I wanted more of that. I do hope you'll do a sequel. And you mentioned the possibility of there being a sequel, which normally you would exclude as a possibility. Yeah, generally, my, my feeling about sequels has generally been that if you if you do the book right, you use up the idea that gave birth to it. And then it's like, if you're going to do a sequel, it, it, the sequel has to be about something. It can't just be more adventures of more of the same stuff or more adventures of the same people. I, I, I totally get if you love a novel and you kind of want to check in and like, well, what did they do next? You know, what happened? Yeah. This this particularly Fool on the Hill, there's a hardcore cadre of people who really want a sequel to that. And I, I'm just like, guys, I... I'm not the guy who wrote that novel anymore. I, I you know, I, I don't have anything more to say with them. And it's it's good in, in itself. Lovecraft Country is a bit different though, because I, I had always imagined doing more with it. And and because of the TV series, I, that is basically because it put the book on the bestseller list, that opened up the possibility for me to actually do that more than I'd been thinking of. So so I've been kind of equivocating on this since the the novel came out, but I I will. I'm not really ready to talk about this in detail, but there will be more. There, there actually is going to be more in that world. So again, I don't want to give too much away because I want people to read it and enjoy it. But you do open the door to that happening towards the end of the book where you know, there is going to be you know, further adventure in that regard. And I'll just leave it at that. But this is, so HBO picks this up and I read it was Misha Green, Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams, not too bad. And they made the series based on based on your work. And uh, I did watch some of it. I haven't watched the entire thing yet to see how true to the book is. It, it, it didn't seem like it was 100% true to the book. They, they did deviate in some respects. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Do you feel like they got it right? Oh, it's not really a question of right. I mean, I, there's, a, there's an old John M. King quote that Stephen King liked to make that I, I, I've always thought of where you know, somebody said, oh, Hollywood ruined all your books. And the guy pointed the bookshelf and said, no, no, they didn't. They're still right up there. And I you know, I kind of feel the same way that I've told my version of the story and I, I understand the desire to see very faithful adaptations. But to me, it's like I, I'm actually more interested to see what somebody else will do with the same framework if they take it and, and, and see interpret it differently. So I, I felt they, they, they got everything in the series that I would have wanted to see. But it was fascinating for me to see this this sort of alternate. It's like looking into an alternate universe where I recognize the players and Nothing looks exactly the way I imagined it, but that's cool. And, and, and I was also glad to see that you never really know until it happens whether you're going to be territorial about your own work or whether you're going to object to it. Like, what, do I really believe that I don't care? And, and, and it was like, in this case, yeah, it's like, no, I'm fine with it. And they made, occasionally they would make choices that I, I might not have made because I didn't make them in the novel, but, yeah. but that's okay. And I, I, it was, it was a really fun experience. It was fun to watch. It was also fun to see it take place. It was an yeah. experience I'd never had before having something adapted. Um, and it was really, you know, the, the people were all lovely to me. I mean, I. Were you I, on set when, when these things, when, when. A couple of times. Started? Yeah. I, I did a couple of set visits. I mean, the way this happened, the book came out and 
I, I was surprised again, it was it was unlike, especially after the barrage had been basically ignored. Suddenly there was all this interest from Hollywood. And then one day I get a call from my CIA agent, Matthew Schneider, and he's like, this is a little odd, but Jordan Peele wants to talk to you. And, you know, he's mostly known for comedy, but apparently exactly. he's thinking of breaking into horror. And, and I said, sure, I'm happy to talk to him. And then I found out Misha Green was going to be on the phone call. And Misha, I had actually seen Underground, which is her other TV show, which is basically The Great Escape on a Slave Plantation. That got me actually more excited than Jordan at, the, at that point, because Misha had figured out how to pitch this idea to TV executives in ways that made them interested and didn't frighten them. And I'm like, great, we'll have Misha. She'll know how to make this sound like something they want to do. And it was, a I, so I was on this phone call with me and Misha and Jordan. And it, it was, sometimes when you talk to people in Hollywood, you feel like they've read a different novel than the one you wrote. But in yeah. this case, it was like, we were all on the same page. We were all, we'd all read the same book and we were all excited about it for the same reason. So I was, by the time I got off the phone, I was sold. And then it was a few weeks later when the, the trailer to Get Out dropped, the first one. And as soon as I saw that, I realized, oh, okay, I know why Jordan wants to do this because we're on the same wavelength. He's he's just doing it in the modern day. So yeah, it was and it was kind of a an incredible golden ticket moment from there that of course Get Out comes out and is incredibly successful. And Jordan's basically able to do whatever he wants at that point. And I was just lucky enough to be the guy who he wanted, one of the things he wanted to do was Lovecraft Country. And so that opened the door to HBO and HBO saying, you know, ordinarily we'd have you film a pilot and then we'd think about it, but we're just going to order the first season straight to series right, right to the beginning. And so, yeah, it was this incredible, this incredible moment of overnight success after 35 years as a novelist. So, um, and yeah, and it was an incredible adventure. So yeah, I got to come down to the set and watch them. I was there when they shot the the, uh, block party scene from the the pilot episode. So that was two nights of all night shooting. It was the first time I'd been up all night since college, I think. And then my wife and I got to come down to Georgia to watch the filming of some of the other episodes later in the season. And yeah, the whole experience meeting the, meeting the actors and just learning how the movie production or how film production or works is, is really interesting. And yeah, and everybody was just incredibly nice to me. The main thing is that everyone is so busy on set. You you meet these really interesting people and you have no time to really talk to them. So, And you you borrowed substantially from H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, were those, so uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Is it Shoggoth? Oh, the Shoggoths. Well, it's funny. Lovecraft is that what those in, were? Well, Lovecraft kind of came in the back door on this that, okay. like, again, initially the, the, the initial inspiration was really more X-Files, but I needed a thematic bridge between paranormal horror and racism. And Lovecraft, of course, is quite infamous for being, I mean, he's, he's one of the most influential horror writers of, of the 20th century. He really kind of created cosmic horror and, and, but he was also a vocal white supremacist and not like, you know, not in the like- Which you point mild, out. Mild throwing it around kind of way that we do today. I mean, he really did believe that white people and white culture represented the pinnacle of evolution and that, you know, black folks in specific were were a lesser species. And this comes through in his, his, his writing, but it, it in his, not in his fiction, but it's particularly true if you ever read his letters. He just, you know, he cannot- like when he travels, when he did a lot of, he actually did quite a lot of traveling. He never passes up an opportunity to tell you when there are too many black people in a given location. So it's, he seemed like the good, a good sort of 
thematic bridge for this. And so I came up with this idea. Yeah, it's Lovecraft Country, which is a sort of double entendre for the, the paranormal landscape where monsters come from, but also this other, this other landscape of America in the 1950s and in segregated society that where a different kind of monster comes from. And it, it just sort right. of fit that general sense of, and his specialty in horror was a kind of creeping dread and paranoia. He's not the kind of guy if the monster shows up, it's in the last page of the story. It's really more about you're traveling in a place where you're not welcome. You're in a hostile universe. There are all these warning signs that bad things are going to happen to you and you, you're constantly on edge. And that maps really well onto the experience of, you know, Black folks taking road trips in the 1950s where you actually need a guide to tell you where you're, you know, what hotels will take you in the night are not going to tell you they don't have a vacancy. And, you know, what, yeah. what, so once I, once I had that, then I sort of mapped some more Lovecraftian story ideas into the novel. But yeah, so the, one of them are these ideas of, of Shoggoths, which in Lovecraft are described as sort of protoplasmic. They're created as slaves by a, a more superior race of people who lived in Antarctica aeons ago. And, and, uh, their masters died off, but they still live there. And they're just these, like imagine a giant amorphous pool of black jelly that, you know, can move as fast as a freight train and, and can eat you alive. And that's, and, and so in the, in the novel, they are basically just evil wizards. The Braithwaites have a pet, have a pet thing that it's, it's, they don't call it a shoggoth. Atticus does because he's, he's doing his, his nerd thing. It's like, that's what I'm going to call it. But it's basically imagine a, a creature of living shadow that can swallow a man whole. And yeah. for the, the TV series, they adapted that somewhat because a big pool of darkness doesn't look that cool on screen. So they created these sort of kind of pale little critters with eyes all over their bodies. And they're, they're creepy, but they're also kind of cute. You can see one and you get a plushy version of them. So I, I kind of like that too. That was neat. But the, those become sort of the, the guard dogs of the Braithwaite estate in the novel. Yeah. You clearly were writing not just a horror and uh, fiction book, but you were clearly also writing about about racism and about Jim Crow, and uh, and you do you do show the other kinds of monster, the human monster. I thought it was interesting when you have the the character Ruby, who through things that happen in the book, ultimately has the ability to go back and forth and become a yes. white version of herself. And I assume that there was also some thinking there along just the con contrasting the experience of being black and being white. Well, it's funny that, that this is one of the ways that things evolve. It's like, it's an obvious thing to get into, but Ruby's, Ruby's story grew out in part out of a, a, a problem that I had created for myself, which is that I wanted all my viewpoint characters. I'd made this command decision early on in the novel that all the viewpoint characters were going to be black, which created a problem because I needed a way to show what the, the white villains were up to when they thought nobody could see them. And so the obvious thing was, well, let me do a Jekyll and Hyde story. And then, mm -hmm. you know, who do I do that with? And another thing I love to do in a novel is take a character you think is going to be peripheral or a minor character and make them one of the most important characters in the novel. So in this case, Ruby, who early on in the novel seems like, oh, she's just Letitia's sister who works as a maid. And, you know, you, you, you maybe, maybe she'll, you know, have some minor thing. And no, it turns out, Ruby becomes this central figure that she's, she's sort of tapped to. She, she gets the ability to transform into a, a white woman. And in that guise is able to see what the, what the white characters are doing. And, but also it's like Ruby is specifically, she's dark skinned. So she's the idea of passing as white is not something that can ever enter her darkest dreams. And it's about her rest. And part of the story is just about her wrestling with the, the, the freedom that gives her. And it's, again, it's sort of the inverse of Jacqueline Hyde and that the, the Jekyll and Hyde story was like Jekyll becomes Hyde so that he can sin without consequence. Right. 
Ruby becomes, in, in the novel, she calls her alter ego Hillary. Ruby becomes Hillary because just so she can live a normal life. And there, the sin is in what she has to do to get that. And so yeah. it sort of turns things on their head. And um, yeah, and this is another thing. I, I mean, I talked again about hybridization and, and it makes the story richer when you can combine, on the one hand, these sort of fantastic elements and monsters and magic, but at the same time, you're also talking about real life history and you know the emotions that come from that and the, the hard choices that real people had to make. Obviously, you know, there's no Jekyll and Hyde potion, but this thing of, yeah, if, if you could leave the black community and just become you know, a normal quote unquote white person and, and leave racism behind, what is that going to cost you? If, if that's an option for you in your life, there were people who did this, but, and it was very hard for them though, because you, you're cut off from the people you grew up with, you're cut off from the community that gave birth to you. But on the other hand, you get to live a, a much, you know, nicer life and, and less constrained life as, as a result of that. And then, so it's an interesting thing to write about. Yeah, well, fantastic book. Truly enjoyed it. Uh, I've already bought uh, Mirage, which will be the next one that I read. Although it was, it wasn't until after I bought Mirage that I learned that Bad Monkeys actually may be made into a movie. So, can you speak to that? Is there is there a process sure, uh, in place? It's it's been optioned by Universal Studios, and Margot Robbie is attached to Star. It's been in development for a while. I think there. It's just going to be in, Hollywood takes a long time, you know. Movies, the, the the that's the thing is like with books, it's like you basically it's you and your publisher, and it, it's much easier. The 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 progress goes a lot faster. Hollywood, it just there's a lot of prep time, and you know, in development means it it might happen. They're still trying to make it happen, and you know, one day hopefully we'll get a phone call saying yes, we're going into production. But, you know, it, it could be it could be next week, it could be next month, it could be a couple of years from now, it could be 10 years from now, you don't know, but it's fun. Another thing though that's going on is Set This House in Order is actually being developed as a musical. The guy named Nico Muley, he's a sort of musical wunderkind from New York City, had optioned it many years ago for opera, and now it's being developed by the Berkeley Rep as a musical. So that wow. would be an interesting thing to see. And that actually is moving forward. So I'm not sure exactly what the timetable is, but that should be sometime in the next year. So you've had you've had great success, it seems, at least of late. And yet, you know, it does seem like you've had to persevere to get to where you are right now. Sure, you successfully sold your first novel at a at a young age shortly after college, but you said, and this is a quote, there were a combination of timely foreign rights sales, generous support of family and friends, occasional grant money, and a slowly accumulating backlist. I've managed to make novel writing my primary occupation ever since. There's no doubt about that now, though, right? I mean, I have to believe that given your success, people must be after you. People must be pushing you. What are you going to write next? I'm certainly in the, in the best place you know, career-wise that I've been ever. Yeah, I mean, part of it was just when I was young, I didn't mind being poor. And, you know, I, it was a very impractical approach to a career. I didn't really have a fallback plan if my first novel had never, you know, hadn't been sold so quickly. If, you know, there's there's a bunch of different times when if things had gone wrong, I, I, you know, I don't know, I might've ended up living in the woods somewhere, but I didn't really have a plan if the, if the writing didn't work out. And I just was always able to keep going until the point where I was financially successful enough that I could keep doing it. But even now, it's like, you know, it, it is entirely possible that Lovecraft Country will prove to be the, you know, the high point of my career and that, you know, after this, I'll, 
you know, it, you, you never know if, if you're going to someday run out of money or have to do something else. It would be very hard, obviously, at, I'm 56 years old. It would be very hard to find a, a real job at this point. So I have to hope that at the very least, you know, there's enough, there will be enough money from the, the books I've already written to, you know, at least keep food on the table for however long I, I remain on this planet. But yeah, it's not a, it's not a career for people who want clear financial security. And again, it, I was an overnight success at, you know, after 35 years of doing this and it, it could have gone another way. And, and again, a lot of this is just comes to, if Jordan Peele had not handed me that golden ticket, Lovecraft did okay when it came out, but it wasn't, it didn't become a bestseller until after the HBO series was announced. And so if that hadn't happened, it'd be a completely different situation now. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I have, I have opportunities I didn't have. There are certainly, you know, if I, if I wanted to try something, you know, if I wanted to try screenwriting, I'm sure I could get, I could get meetings, but you never really know. And it's just a question of, I, but I love doing what I do and I can't imagine doing anything else. And that's basically what it comes down to. And I'm willing to make the, the trade-offs that come with that. And unfortunately, my wife is willing to make those trade-offs too. So she's the practical one in the family. She's the one who does the actual accounting and says, you know, you gotta, gotta start. Yeah. We, we, we need another success here or we're going to have some problems. So yeah, that's the thing about successful. There's always, you know, pressure to be even more successful or to continue that success. Or, or just to stay on the plateau that you reached, which is yeah, not yeah. easy either. You wrote some, some books that you didn't publish, including one that's described as semi-autobiographical. Will they ever get published or is this going to be like another Christopher Tolkien kind of thing where we have to wait for uh, you to die many years from now? <laughs> well, I don't have children, so there's nobody to, there's nobody to loot my uh, okay, no, no Christopher my truck Tolkien novels after I die. Um, no, I, the, 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 the semi book, autobiographical book, it's called The Gospel According to St. Thomas. It was basically, I had, I had been trying to actually finish a novel. Like when I, when I first started writing, I would just, I would start writing. It was more like writing soap operas almost, right? I'd start writing a, a story and then I'd go on until I got bored with it and then I'd start something else. And then eventually I learned structure. And so, so that has, Gospel Creek St. Thomas is about a minister's son who comes to realize he's losing his faith and needs to tell his parents that. And so it was basically, it was a book I wrote to tell my parents that, you know, yeah, I'm not growing up to be the devout Lutheran you might've hoped. And I don't know that it was very good, but it was it, it basically I was able to finish it because I cared enough about what what it was about, and that was the most important thing that that, that it taught me that I could actually finish a novel sized project. So no, I, I I can't imagine actually trying to publish that because there's I, I it did its job, it got me going, and and if I wanted to address those themes now, I'd write a different novel. Likewise, after uh, Fool Me Hill, I, I the only novel I ever had after Fool Me Hill that got rejected, I, I wrote a book called Venus Envy, which is basically a lesbian vampire novel, but it's weirder than that because it's me, and that one just didn't. You know, they, they love just the way your mind works. <laughs> that one just didn't quite, you know, it didn't quite go over. And there are things about it I still love looking back at it. But again, I, I to go back into it now, I, I, if, if I really wanted to do that, I just rewrite it. I take the basic ideas in it and write a new novel. And once in a while, I might think about that. But again, it's just I've got other things I'd rather do now that interest me now. So it's these things, these were, these were fun stories at the time, but what drives me really is what, you know, there's, there's always something I want to work on now. And so there's no need to go back and, and mine the past for these ideas that, you know, were exciting then, but, but they, they were exciting to a different me, a younger me who had different ideas of what was important and what worked. So no, but they, they, again, they did their job. 
So we're going to move shortly into our extraordinary teaching segment where I will ask you some questions that I try to ask all of my guests uh, just to see how you respond relative to how others respond. But before I do that, I do want to ask, so I've heard rumors about you writing uh, a, a new book. Well, I'm and, always doing that. Okay. So uh, anything you can tell us about it? I would say we're almost ready to talk about it. Basically this month, I'm doing the final revision of the draft and I will be posting something about it on my website, you know, probably in a few weeks. I don't want to jinx it by talking about it now though, if that's okay. I, I appreciate the interest though, but just check out my website and, and actually probably by the time this podcast airs, there will be news. And I think it will make a lot of people happy. Let's put it that way. Okay, great. Yeah. And your website, by the way, just just so that our listeners can learn more is bymattruff.com, correct? Yes. By as in a byline, B-Y. <clears throat> and um, the reason it's that and not just mattruff.com is that I did not listen to my mother-in-law when she told me, you've got to get your domain name secured as soon as possible because I'm like, how many Matt Ruffs could there be in the United States? <laughs> well, it turns out there's at least one, and he was faster on the draw than I was. But I'm, you know, and actually, I kind of like the buymattruff.com byline anyway. It works. It, it kind of suits me. So, I like it. I like it as well. It became your yeah. Twitter handle as well. I noticed. Yes, because again, Matt Ruff has been taken. So, but the buy Matt Ruff actually generally it's available if I if I get into the medium within the first two weeks or <laughs> the new platform or whatever it is. All right, let's go into our extraordinary teaching segment. So I'm going to ask you some questions and whatever comes to your mind. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment so far? I mean, the obvious answer is Lovecraft Country. And I'm just so happy that that worked out the way it did. And and that's, you know, but I I guess the other answer and and maybe the the broader answer is just that the fact that I'm still doing this, that I'm still able to make a decent living as a writer, you know, a, a, a after all of these years, and that all my books are still in print too, which is unusual. That's the that's the biggest accomplishment that I, I, I took this incredibly impractical career path and it worked out so far. Yeah. That's a good one. Do you have any regrets? I don't really dwell in regrets that way. I mean, I, I, I'll play that game where, gosh, I wish I'd done that differently. But the problem I always run into is that sort of time travel paradox where it, my mistakes as well as my smart moves are the things that got me here. And if you fixed something like that, what it might have changed something that I, it made something worse. So generally not much, no. Yeah, I completely agree with that philosophy. What single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? So many years ago, I was on a science fiction panel at a convention with another author who I won't name, but he was somebody who made money doing tie-in novels, you know, where you write Star Trek novels or Star Wars or what have you. Yep. Or, and he was complaining vociferously about all of the restrictions that they, the IP owners put on you. Like, if you're going to write Star Trek, like, there are things you just can't do. And, it, you know, I said, trying to be helpful, you know, why don't you just make up your own universe then and, and do your own thing? And he kind of looked at me like I had two heads and said, Sure, that's great if you don't want to make a living. And it was like, okay. <laughs> but that was, that was, you know, this isn't the thing that I occasionally encounter. Other authors who, 
basically played it safe and, and kind of envy what I've been able to do. And I, and I think the tip I would give people is just like recognize that there are trade-offs in whatever you pursue. And the way to be happy is to decide what matters most to you. If economic security and success is the biggest thing, then that's going to mean finding like one thing that you do well, like one type of story that you do well, stick to the same genre, be reliable, and you can be successful. And if the thing that's most important to you as it is to me is to just tell the cool story that, you know, comes to you right now, that's going to have a lot more risk financially because it's just harder to sell. The publishing industry has a hard time with people who don't do the same novel every time. But if you understand that that's what you're doing and that you're making that gamble, then you, you can at least, you know, you can feel, you, you can be okay with the fact if it doesn't work out, if you don't become rich and famous. Um, you know, it's not that I don't want financial security. It's been quite good having, having the success of Lovecraft Country. But if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't necessarily take it amiss. I would still be, I would still have written the book I wanted to write. And, you know, as I was starving to death out in the woods, I would at least have that satisfaction. <laughs> so... But that's the thing is like there are trade-offs and just decide what what matters more to you and, and make it. My next question is what's the best advice you've ever given or received? But I'm wondering if you just answered it. Yeah, I can give you another one though, which is that one of the unifying things in my novels is that I, I really do enjoy using fiction to help me understand other people or put myself into the heads of folks who, you know, are different from me. I mean, so obviously with Lovecraft Country, I often get asked, well, you're a white guy. What are you doing writing this? And it's because I, I love using fiction to, to sort of understand. I like writing psychologically realistic characters who just aren't me and, and figuring out, you know, how they see the world and why they do what they do. And that's a skill that you can learn. And you will sometimes see people when they're arguing on the internet, they'll say something like, you know, I, I don't understand why you think this. And Literally, that's a confession of ignorance, but the way it's, it's, it's intended generally as an accusation, what people are saying there is you're behaving in a way that seems irrational or evil or, you know, crazy to me, stop that. And they're not trying to understand you. They're telling you, you should behave the way I would behave if I were you. And it's actually quite useful if you train yourself out of that and recognize that, you know, not everyone who does things differently than you is evil or stupid or not. Sometimes they are. And if you can, and if that's the case, it's useful to know that, but sometimes it's just, they're different. And if you take the time to, to actually think it through and get where they're coming from and why they make this decision that you wouldn't make, well, one, that's really useful if you're a novelist, but it, it also is useful just in general interaction because if somebody's evil, there's not a whole lot of choices as how you're going to deal with them. But if it's just they're different and they see things differently than you do, then you have more options and, and you can at least be more intelligent in how you react to them. So that's a useful thing to, to, to train yourself to do. So, Excellent. What have been your biggest mistakes or learning opportunities? Well, I, mean, this, I, I think this goes back to the question of, you know, do I have any regrets where I've, I could probably figure out stuff that was that I did that was stupid, but it in doing that, the, the mistakes were the things I learned from. I've never done anything that I can't live with. The mistakes I've made have just been necessary errors or, or tests of, of theories I had about, you know, well, let me, let me get on this avenue in this story, or let me try this, you know, life choice. And nope, that didn't work the way I wanted. I'm not going to do that again. I don't really keep a list of stuff. It's, it's like just, you know, inevitably to get to, you know, adulthood, you just gotta, you gotta butt your head against the wall a few times or more than a few times. I normally ask people who their key role models and mentors were. I'm going to guess your parents are at the top of that list. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
and then we talked about some of the other folks earlier as well but yeah my mom and dad really had a huge influence on me that you know that again i i didn't fully appreciate i think until later i mean with mom i i, I kind of did but my dad again it was dad's advice was always a bit more sophisticated and there were things he told me that you know it was often like you know years later i'd figure something out i'm like oh yeah that's what he was trying to tell me there i didn't quite i wasn't quite old enough to get it so yeah they're really the the biggest the biggest ones i think and i have two more questions for you one is do you have a personal mission not really i mean except in the sense to tell stories that's really what i seem to be here to do to tell the stories that you know most interest me and my novels because they are you know because i do get very interested in the psychology of my characters i do talk about politics sometimes it's not that i don't have political beliefs and and stuff but i generally find that i'm not a good message guy because if i try to consciously put a message into a novel it it just doesn't it's, it's less interesting because messages get in the way of the messiness of human psychology. People don't just do things because it fits a certain program. They do what they do because of who they are. And that's more interesting to me is understanding people. Maybe that's the mission is figuring people out through this thing, I, this weird thing I do for a living. But, but I, I think I do best when I just try to, you know, I tell the story and let the message and the mission evolve organically from that rather than trying to force it. What do you hope your legacy will be? Wow. It would just be nice if the book stuck around after I'm gone. But I, I, again, I'm not, I don't worry about legacy too much because I, I get, again, it's, it's very much a matter of luck, whether everything fades with time. There's like a handful of people, like we're still talking about Shakespeare 400 years later, but I'm not Shakespeare and I'm not, you know, so I don't know. I don't, I don't really worry about legacy. I, I would love it if I could just stick around and see how things turned out. But, you know, yeah. what happens once I'm gone, that's really for the future to decide. And, you know, if I, if something I leave behind is helpful to somebody, great. If not, well, that's just the way it works. I suspect your books will be around for a long time. Any final words, Matt? No, I think we covered everything, but I, I just I really appreciate having the chance to talk. It's been a pleasure. And uh, if people do decide to check out the books, I, I hope it's to your taste. And again, the, if you look on my website, you'll, you'll find, you know, descriptions of stuff. Um, I often talk, you know, in a couple of cases like Sirius Electric, I talk about the origin story of that. I got a, I got a page there where I explain how that came to be. That may give people a hint as to the, the weird thought processes I have and, you know, how I come to the books I, I write. And I believe I did a blog post not long ago that talks about, it, just search for Matt Ruff Ovra, like a quick and dirty guide to the Matt Ruff, but basically what to read after you've read Lovecraft Country that also sort of talks in more detail about each of my novels and, and what may appeal to you if you don't know what to try first. So, And that is the extraordinary Matt Ruff. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. You can learn more about Matt and his work at buymattruff.com. And be sure to join me in reading his books, which are all available on Amazon and elsewhere. You can also follow Matt on Twitter at buymattruff. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.